We've entitled our series in the book of Esther, Navigating Life as an Exile. The people of Esther's day were exiles far from their homeland, homeland, as are we. The book of Esther packed more punch than you might realize, mostly because the heroes, as we've seen over the last four weeks, Mordecai and Esther are at times not very heroic. Esther may have been bullied into appearing before the king, but when she decided to go, we're going to see today that she went all in, all the way. She begins in chapter 5 to put on a master class on how to get a mercurial, moody king to act honorably. In other words, she plays to his pride. She boldly faces down her people's enemy, Haman and starts her plan to take him down. And he assists greatly by flaunting and exposing his great pride. Pride is a perpetual danger to the Lord's exiles. Pride in every form is deadly, more deadly than we think. The late John Stott states the matter exactly right when he says pride is our greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Pride is that inclination we have to esteem ourselves more highly than other people. If you've been around church, doubtlessly you've heard or maybe even memorized Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. There are falls and then there's falls like Haman's. Chapter 5 reveals the pride that will lead to said fall. We want to avoid these falls. So, if you have your Bible, we're going to begin in chapter 5. And first we see, beginning in verse 1, how Esther plays on Xerxes' pride. Esther plays on Xerxes' pride. Now remember, she has said, I'm going to go into the king... You can't just go into the king uninvited in Persia. But here, that's exactly what she does. Verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, She won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Now remember, no one was invited, as I said, to appear before Persian kings. In fact, there is archaeological evidence that a court attendant would stand behind the king always holding an axe. So that if anyone would have the temerity to walk into the king's presence uninvited, that individual was responsible to separate heads from shoulders. Now, here's Esther coming in with that threat over her life. Now, notice the maturation of Esther we've seen even from the beginning. From the beginning in chapter 2, we see that she has to be directed on what to do and how to go forth to win favor from the king. But not this time. Nobody consults with her on what to do. What does she do? She puts on her royal robes. The text literally says 
she put on her royalty. So she shows up in all of her regal grandeur with all the trappings of her, of her royalty. She is Queen Esther, after all. And when Queen Esther appears to King Xerxes, he decides not to kill her. How nice. And so with the first hurdle over, now she begins the plan to save her people. Verse 3. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for, my, for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. Now, a couple things to notice here. The king is in a good mood. You don't always catch this king in a good mood. You know, people who are moody, you've got to measure when you come and approach them and ask for something. This king is like that. He's in a good mood. This is the version of Xerxes that Esther wanted to run into. Moody Xerxes, it turns out, is also generous Xerxes. Before even hearing what Esther wants, what does he say? What's your request? What do you want? It shall be given unto you, even up to half of my kingdom. He's ready to give away the farm. Things are going well. And he seems like he's in a rush to accommodate Esther. She asks him to come to a feast and bring Haman. And Haman doesn't even say yes or say, I'll go. Look at verse 5. The king said, notice his rush, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther asked. He is so ready to do whatever Esther wants. And as thoughtful readers, we ask the question, why, oh why, Esther, did you not ask the king right now to save your people? And why in the world would you ever invite the man who has made Jewish annihilation law? Why would you invite Haman to the same table you are going to share with the king? See, she chooses to look her enemy right in the eye. We'll see why in the moment, in a moment. So they go to the feast. After all the food comes out and the wine comes out and the corks pop, the king turns to Esther. Look at verse 6. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. Remember the same language almost? And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of my king, of the king, and it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow... I will do as the king has said. Notice Esther is stringing him along. She's playing to his pride, right? Look at the last sentence of verse 7. My wish and my request is... You expect her to say, hey, listen, there's a plot to kill all the Jews. But she doesn't do that. That's right the place that if we're watching this on TV, it cuts to a commercial break, right? My wish and my request is... Now, this is risky business. 
she puts off asking the king for the privilege of saving her people. She's walking a a razor's edge, and the king could have just said, listen, I'm the king. I have come to one feast today. I don't want to go to another feast tomorrow. This king likes to feast. She knows that. Why this charade? Why is she saying, come to a feast? And the king says, what do you want? And she goes, well, I want you to come back to another feast. And this time, again, bring Haman. Now, some people say that Esther was nervous. And she couldn't bring herself to ask the king. But she has already faced the prospect of death in going into the king's presence uninvited. And she also takes this courageous stand to invite Haman himself. I don't think she's afraid, and I don't think she's nervous. Why would, why would a person, a nervous person, invite her archenemy to die? If you've ever had an archenemy, you know. I hope many of you don't, besides the devil. But you're not thinking, you know, I want to invite them over for dinner. But that's what Esther does. It's very strange. So why is she doing this? Well, she knows the king. And she's, she knows he's a proud man. He's a haughty man. And he has said twice that he will do whatever she wants, even up to half his kingdom. She wants the king to feel this tension of not knowing what she wants. So that finally, when she asks to save the Jews, he will be painted in a corner and have to give his, his, you know, his approval. In other words, Esther knows the king has said over and over, I'll do anything. I'll do anything. So that when she finally presents her request, he will. He will be duty-bound to do anything. And further, she needed Haman to be there as well. She needed the king to make a snap decision, as he is apt to do, and not have a side conversation with Haman, and all of his consultants, because remember, this king is very wishy-washy. This king, this king is one of those people who, he says, I'm going to do X, and then he goes off and talks to people and changes his mind. Esther needs to make sure that he doesn't change his mind, and he does this, she does this by playing to his pride. She engineered this whole encounter so that he had to agree, and we will find that he agrees in chapter 7. She had to handle him more than just make a request of him, because he was not reasonable. Proud people are not reasonable. Are you reasonable? Are you the kind of person that people have to fast three days to work up the the, the courage to approach you? Or are you reasonable, kind, generous, even-keeled, Philippians 4 says, let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. Is yours obvious? Xerxes, his unreasonableness was made known to everyone. And so Esther, Esther shows she's a politician and then some. But are you reasonable? Ask your family, ask your friends, ask the people you work with. Ask them if you're easy to approach and correct. Or do they have to Put out feelers to see what kind of mood you're in. Reasonable people are genuinely 
generally, generally reasonable all the time. Are you reasonable? Proud people have to be played and handled like Esther played and handled Xerxes. Well, she got them all set up, and just like that, the scene abruptly shifts. It changes. The camera now zooms in. It was on Esther and Xerxes. Now the camera zooms in on Haman. Haman, who was not even mentioned in the conversation between the king and Esther, we now see Haman fly his colors, his colors of pride, high and loud. So we see Haman display his pride. Verse 9. And Haman went out, that's from the feast, that day joyful and glad of heart. You bet he did, right? He was invited to dine with the queen and the king. No one else was, just him. He was flying high when he walked away from that feast. He was, he was privileged. He was the prime minister of the land. He had money. He had fame. He had everything he wanted. But in just a few steps, everything changed. The second part of verse 9. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. So Mordecai, Mordecai is doing what Mordecai does. Mordecai is not recognizing Haman. He's just working. And Haman, notice, he wanted Mordecai. <laughs> he, Mordecai doesn't rise, so he doesn't stand up. He stays at his desk, continuing to work. He wants Mordecai to tremble as if, here I know I'm in the presence of Haman who has all the authority, nothing of what I am. He is so much greater than me. And Mordecai does none of the, none, nothing like that. And so Mordecai sits there and continues to work, and Haman is filled with anger. Now, he had the right, he had the ability to kill Mordecai right there. He could have had soldiers pounce on Mordecai and end his life, but that's not what he does. Instead, instead, he sends for people that he trusts. So what does a proud man do to make himself feel better? Well, he regales himself, and anyone who will listen with all of his accomplishments. And that's what he does, beginning in verse 11. And Haman recounted to them all the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. You see, pride blinds a person to reality. And tomorrow I'm also invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. He's bragging to his wife and his friends. See, people who are proud know who to gather around them who will listen. He knows. He's got friends who nod their head when Haman talks about his accomplishments. He's got friends who will say, yeah, you are the greatest. 
He's got a wife who will nod her head. It's probably a speech that he's rehearsed more than a few times verbally and thousands of times in his head. He's got money. He's got boys. He's got the position of prime minister. He eats with royalty. Not just today, but tomorrow as well. But yet, even though he had all these things, they were worth nothing, he says, as long as Mordecai the Jew, that insolent Jew, you can almost hear it in his voice, was alive. Even with respect to the whole of the kingdom, he was dissatisfied. There was no one save the king in a higher position, and yet he was occupied with someone like Mordecai. You see, the proud are never satisfied. Little does he know, but the next day after the feast would be his last day. And that next feast he would be invited to would be the end. But this day, after regaling his friends and wife, his wife abruptly gives the kind of advice that prideful people love to get, a plan to make them more important. Verse 14. Then, remember he says, I want Mordecai dead. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So, Zeresh, Zeresh knows, like, I need to make sure that this guy doesn't turn his anger on me, right? So when you live with someone who's proud and insolent and arrogant, what you do is you want to make sure that you deflect their pride to other people, and that's what she's doing. She says, hey, let's, let's have gallows constructed that are 75 feet high, and then let's hang Mordecai from those gallows. You see, it would be, in essence, Haman advertising his greatness. If you do not bow and respect me, if you will not shake and tremble in my presence, I will hang you aloft for the whole land to see. And that's his plan with Mordecai. Angel army with flaming swords, not by opening the ground and beneath Haman's feet. How would he do this? By allowing Haman to give full expression to his pride. The Lord will use Haman's self-importance against him. The Lord allows Haman to do what? Follow his heart, which is always deadly. And his prideful heart led him to the gallows. See, that's the way the Lord brings judgment most of the time. You know what he does? He gives us what we want. He says, you want to be important? You want to live for yourself? Go ahead. You want to be seen to be a man or a woman of some reputation? Pursue it. Follow your heart, and you follow your heart to the grave. See, the way the Lord brings judgment is he gives the proud over to their base desires. 
That's what we read in Romans 1.22 and following. Paul, speaking of mankind in general, claiming to be wise, he said, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, what did God do? God gave them up. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Some of the most frightening words we can read in the scriptures is this, therefore God gave them up. If you do not humble yourself before God, God will humble you. If you do not humble yourself before God, God will humble you by giving you what you want. God delivers judgment to people by removing restraints and allowing deadly pride to run its course, which is always death. Just as Haman constructed the gallows that he would ultimately hang on, the Lord allows the proud to construct their own gallows on which they ultimately hang. All the while, they think they are free They think they are doing what they want. They think they are fulfilled. They think they are living their best life now. They think they are being true to themselves. All the while, they refuse to humble themselves and look to the Lord. They refuse to humble themselves before the Lord, and they slowly build gallows of their own destruction. If you're here and you're not following Jesus, you might think, that your greatest problem is money or trauma or not having friends or just belonging or even being understood. But that's not your greatest problem. Your greatest problem today is pride. How do I know? Because that's mine too. That's all of ours. Pride is a scourge that has haunted mankind since the garden. Pride is so insidious that it can hide in plain sight and often masquerades in statements like the following. I am who I am. I'm going to follow my heart. I don't need anyone. Who is God to tell me how to live? Our American culture is tailor-made to play to our pride. We're told, do what feels right, because what feels right is right. See, the problem is, is that if we authorize our feelings to tell us who we are, we end up on the wrong path. Our feelings are far too changeable, far too malleable to be a reliable guide. See, when you don't humble yourself before the Lord, you're saying you know better than the God who created you. That will not end well. Have you submitted to the Lord? Have you confessed, if you're not a Christian, have you confessed that you are a sinner in need of grace, just like as we've sung and heard about this morning? Grace is not a substance like a a steam that kind of emanates from Jesus. Grace is Christ's favor toward sinners that he freely gives 
to the humble. He will freely forgive any who humble themselves. And if this sounds like strange backwards language, if you're new to church, it is strange and backward language. But this is the truth. Pride is more deadly than you think. Humble yourself before the Lord, or he will humble you. You see, the Christian life, if you're a Christian, the Christian life is also a life of ongoing repentance and humility. It's important for us to recognize that we also can be humbled or we can humble ourselves. One of the things that the Lord is so good and kind and gracious and faithful to do is that when we are trapped in sin or when we come to terms with sin or when we have a truce declared with the pride in our life, the Lord is kind and gracious to discipline us so that we might freely humble ourselves. But we need to look higher than just our own hearts and lives. We need to understand that the aim of this message and the aim of Esther chapter 5 is not just to try to be a better person. Rather, we need to be the kind of people who instead fix our eyes on Jesus. It is only in following Him closely do we find the only safe place to be humble. Humility is always dangerous when you come before a proud person because they use your faults and your flaws against you, but Jesus is not like that. He is our friend. If there was anybody who should be like that, it's Jesus. Perfect. All-powerful. Defeated death. Never once did he sin. But you know what? That is not who he is. Let's think a moment or two about how different our Savior is. Jesus is the one who was robed in majesty but became a man. He was the one who put on strength as a belt but lived in weakness on earth. He was the one mightier than the thunders of many waters who commanded the morning from the beginning but was allowed to be led around by evil men. He's the one who prescribed limits to the oceans. But yet, evil ones came against him and put him on a cross. He was the one who measures the water in the hollow of his hands. And yet, that one had his hands pierced. This one is the one who humbled himself. Why is it safe to humble yourself before Jesus? Because Jesus humbled himself and died for us. Philippians 2 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, what did he do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself. This is a double humbling. 
the Lord, mighty in power, resplendent with all glory, became a man. More than that, humbled himself as a man and endured the shame of the cross. Haman was hung from the gallows because of his pride. Jesus was hung from the gallows because of our pride. What a stunning reversal. He was lifted high upon the cross to pay for the price of our pride. Our Lord Jesus shows his might through his humility. See, this is why we can freely approach him. This is why we can come to him. He doesn't hold on to our past sins. He died. So the, the debt of sin that we owed might be forever paid. Do you see why we should all, as Christians, approach him, come to him? Sometimes, if you're like me, I would rather die than humble myself. Sometimes the accuser of the saints whispers in my ear that I'm far too compromised and the Lord does not want to hear from me anymore. Sometimes I forget his kindness and his goodness and I retreat from him instead of bowing my knee and humbling myself before him. Friends, the safest place for all of us who need to humble ourselves, which is all of us, is before the throne of grace. There's no angelic attendant behind the throne wielding an axe, ready to behead anyone who comes on their own initiative. No, it's a throne of grace, and we are invited to come boldly to this throne of grace. Not because we have the standing within ourselves, but because that standing has been given to us in Christ Jesus. We have a better plea. We have, we can plea the actions of Christ. When we come to the Lord and ask forgiveness, we plead His blood. When we come to the Lord and ask for help, we plead His strength. When we come knowing that we are guilty and that the accuser of the brothers, Satan, is coming at us, we can plead our Savior. We are in Him now. And so His righteousness is ours. And we have to be afraid, and we don't have to be afraid anymore. Humility before our Savior is not a trial. This is not an exercise in debasement, just acknowledging, it's just acknowledging what is real. We have little to be proud of, but much to be humble for. Friends, Humble yourself before the Lord, or he will humble you. Though Esther 5 does not use the word God, and Jesus isn't anywhere in this passage, Jesus himself in Luke chapter 24 tells us that we must interpret the whole Bible, even the Old Testament, with reference to him. And we, as we see this passage, must recognize that as Christians, we must live a life of humility before our forgiving King. 
humble yourself before the Lord, and he, or he will humble you. So what are some signs of pride that we might hold on to? Here's just a smattering. It's really hard for you to forgive somebody. Another sign of pride is that you harbor bitterness that nobody knows about. Another sign is that you're easily angered and quick to show frustration. And when you're angry, it's almost impossible for people to entreat you. The proud are more bothered when they don't have respect than when they're convicted of sin. The proud think they deserve better than they have. They think they deserve a better wife or husband or health or job. The proud are people who can't remember the last time they asked the Lord for forgiveness. The proud are the kind of people who are constantly offended with something someone's done and who can't remember the last time they were convicted. The proud are people who isolate themselves saying no one will understand. And because pride is the root of every sin, there are so many signs of pride, so many different ways that pride manifests itself among the people of God. There are many ways, but there is only one solution to this pride, and that's humility before our Lord. Humble yourself before the Lord, or He will humble you. This is where it makes all the difference to serve the Lord. He knows, our King knows our frame. He's acquainted with our weakness. He knows what it's like to be tempted in every way. Though he never sinned, he knows what it's like to be harassed by sinful temptations. He is the safest one, the only one that we can freely give all of ourselves to. He is gracious. He is kind. He has steadfast love. You see, one of the lies of the evil one is to say that the Lord isn't kind, that he won't forgive us, that we can't freely go to him. But that's not who our Jesus is. He does not plan revenge against us. He puts our sins and the punishment for our sins as far from the east as from the west. He is kind and gracious and long-suffering with weak saints. He understands, and he does not send away his weak, ignorant, failing saints. He constantly welcomes us to him. His mercies burst forth new every day. He is kind, kinder than we even are to ourselves. Friends, there's only one safe place to be humble. And that's before the Lord of grace. Humble yourself before him, or he will humble you. I'm going to pray for us all, and as I pray, I'm going to ask the Lord to bring things to our minds and our hearts and opportunities for us to be humble. Humility starts vertically, that is, our relationship with the Lord, before it goes horizontally. There are things maybe you're holding on to. There's bitterness maybe. There's anxiety. 
Maybe there's things that you have in your heart against other people or maybe just questions of God that, that you, just, you just can't come to terms with. Humble yourself before him. Ask forgiveness where appropriate. Ask for help because that's always appropriate. Humble yourself before him so that he doesn't have to humble you. Jesus, I know as I survey my heart, I have so much reason for humility. I have so much reason to communicate how and where I've fallen short. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people who do not postpone obedience. I pray that we would be a people who do not come to terms with sin, as embarrassing as it might be. I pray that we would be a people who freely love you and are eager to respond to you. I pray that we would be a people that you do not give, that you don't give us up to ourselves, Lord. Lord, there's lots of times that we think we want to follow our heart, but we don't. In our moments of sobriety and clear, clear thinking, Lord, help us not to be that kind of person. Help us instead to be people who want to follow your heart, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, as you bring things to mind. And I pray that you would bring things to mind in all of our hearts and minds right now. Where we can come and humble ourselves, asking for forgiveness, recognizing our great need, asking for strength that you will freely provide. But Lord, do not give us over to the darkness of our minds so that we think that whatever we feel must be right. Save us from that pit of destruction. And Lord, I ask that you would be merciful to us, Lord. And we also recognize that without your Holy Spirit active, we would not recognize any, anything to be humble about. Oh, but we're grateful for the gift of conviction that comes by your Spirit. And I pray that we would be responsive. So I'm going to leave just a couple moments here for all of us to quietly, personally, engage with God. I pray that you would keep us from the perilous danger of pride. Jesus, thank you for being our way out. Thank you for being easy to come to, quick to forgive. Thank you for not holding our failures and our flaws against us. Jesus, thank you for taking our failures and our flaws upon yourself. I pray for any in this room or who are hearing my voice that are not following you, 
pray that you would make their sins unbearable, Lord, so that they run to you. I pray that there would just be a sense in their own lives and in their own heart that they can't last another moment on their own, that they must come to you. Lord, may you, may you help us to be a people that humble ourselves so that we don't have to be humbled by you. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.